Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Square Inch. It is good to be back on the podcast after a, a break from my studies and vacation. Where we left off was a little mini-series on human sexuality. Back in February, I delivered some lectures, which were my attempt to offer a Protestant version of Pope John Paul II's massively important scholarship entitled Theology of the Body. And I felt like the subject uh, was so important, especially in the cultural moment where we find ourselves, that it warranted some follow-up thoughts on the podcast. So we will soon move on into different areas of cultural engagement, but there are a couple more things I wanted to record before we move on. In addition to my lectures at the conference, I also gave some more um, particularized breakout talks, and one of those in particular seemed to resonate for some people, even maybe even more than the main content that I delivered. Our women's Bible study at our church asked if I would come speak on the implications of theology of the body for women in particular. Uh, that was recorded, and I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I have had many requests to record it here on this bigger platform and maybe go uh, a bit deeper than I was able to do at that women's Bible study. And so that's what I want to discuss um, on this episode. I suppose this is more directed toward female listeners, but I think it's really important for guys to listen in as well. Very important, in fact. Now, two or three episodes ago, I discussed how the female body is central to the story of redemption, both in its imagery and in its delivery, quite literally, <laughs> its delivery. The womb is at the heart of God's salvation plan. So I'm not going to rehash uh, the uniqueness of the female body when it comes to uh, redemption. Instead, I want to talk about the unique glory of the female body in its very design. And it is unique. A female glory is central to God's creation, just as it is central to God's salvation, as we discussed before. And I believe recapturing a vision of that glory is enormous in our day of gender ideology and confusion. Again, I've argued over and over again, uh, we can't argue. We have to tell a better story. And I think there's a better story to be told when it comes to the female body. But let me begin by stating this. Though I am going to argue that there is something different, gloriously different, about the female gender, it is very, very important not to overstate that difference. And here's why I say that. As has been noted by um, many scholars, the evangelical understanding of gender norms um, has been formed more by the Industrial Revolution than Scripture itself. You see, in the agrarian context, which is the predominant context of history before, uh, before that revolution, and still is um, the dominant context in underdeveloped parts of the world. In the agrarian context, the gender differences were not as stark. Of course, the differences between male and female were there and will always be there, but they were not as clearly delineated as they became post the Industrial Revolution. The family was all in it together for survival. And without the female strength, provision, vigor, fortitude, and so forth, the family simply could not survive. But when work became industrialized, it created this notion that men go off to workplace environments with a fraternal and misogynistic culture. Essentially, the workplace became a fraternity, and females were quite literally domesticated. Women stayed home, but the home was likewise now industrialized. It was no longer a threatening 
a labor-intensive blood, sweat, and tears environment. It was a safe, suburban, extremely convenient space with heating and air and indoor plumbing and ovens and stoves and microwaves and vacuum cleaners and so forth. And so the female strength was regulated to this safe, domesticated environment. So men go off to misogynistic vocational fraternities. Women stay home to cook a meal, do some chores, and hang out with other domesticated women in trivial social settings. The best depiction of this is the Mad Men television series that is quite gritty. I can't necessarily recommend it to you. But it's set in the 50s and 60s. And um, our concept of gender norms and evangelicalism honestly has been formed more by what you see on display in that series than Scripture itself. So what does Scripture have to say about gender norms? Well, consider the go-to passage on female nobility, Proverbs 31. How many times, if you grew up in the evangelical culture, how many times have you heard the phrase Proverbs 31 woman? Well, Proverbs 31 takes place in a rugged agrarian society, not the convenient industrialized society. And I just want you to notice how much what we normally associate with men is present when when Proverbs 31 uh, gives us this vision of female nobility. Let me just read, read a couple passages here. She works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So this is a hardworking tenacity and strength to provide for her family. Now, wait a minute. I thought men were supposed to be the providers of the family. Well, it it keeps going. Uh, It says she considers a field and buys it. So she's an investor. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She's a farmer. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She she has strong arms. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable, so she's a savvy entrepreneur. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. So she's fighting the cause of justice. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So much for the stereotype that men were the strong, steady, confident ones and women were prone toward irrational anxieties. No, she laughs at the times to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. So much for the stereotype that men were the wisdom and women were the emotional ones. No, no, no. She opens her mouth and wisdom comes out. Do you see my point? The very go-to passage on womanhood in Scripture is full of gender norms historically ascribed to men by our culture. Well, in protest to these industrialized gender norms comes feminism. And feminism had a very noble intention to dismantle these norms and make room in our industrialized society for females with, quite honestly, the characteristics described in Proverbs 31. But the failure of feminism was its proposed solution. The way feminism sought to address the exaggerated differences between male and female was to erase the differences between male and female. And ironically, this has led to a new form of female subjugation. If a woman has to reject her femininity to be equal to a man, she is perpetuating the same patriarchal lie. Meaning, if she has to become like man to be equal, then implicit in that agenda is that the masculine is superior to the feminine, and equality is only achieved when women become like men. 
So if the differences are not as stark as we have treated them, but we don't want to do away with differences altogether, what then is the difference? Well, theology of the body rightly suggests that we point toward the most obvious difference, the female body. Yes, of course, the difference in biology of the female body, but even more, the theology of the female body. Let me show you what I mean. From the very beginning, the glory of the female body is not just on display. It is to be viewed as the highest glory on display. The creation narrative of Genesis is a poetic crescendo as the creator progressively unveils his living masterpiece. Each successive act of God builds upon the other until we reach the high point of creation, which is his very image bearers as male and female. But what's interesting about the female is that she is the only part of creation taken from the image of God. So Adam, much like all the animals, was crafted from dirt, and then the image of God was breathed into him. Eve, unlike everything else in creation, came from Adam, meaning she was crafted from a living image bearer of God. She comes from God's image, and here's what that means. The high point of all creation is the living image of God, but the high point of the image of God, the loveliest creation in all creation, the apex of God's beautiful masterpiece is the female body. And every single culture throughout all of history intuitively recognizes this innate glory when it comes to the female body. Men are gross. I'm kidding. That's an overstatement. Yes, there is beauty in the male body. But as a general principle, when you look at the male body, it looks like it came from dirt. Not so with the female body. It is a peculiar glory that reflects God's glory in a peculiar way. And it's undeniable, culturally speaking. Every culture in its own way recognizes, celebrates, highlights the glory of the female body. You see, even the fall of Genesis 3, with its disordering of creation, even still, the fall could not eradicate the glory of the female body. In fact, the fall only reinforces this truth by what we have done to the female body after the fall. In short, sinners now cannot handle the glory of your body, ladies. On one side, your body has been exploited by sinful societies for power and money. When we say sex sells, what we really mean is the female body sells. Nothing is more compelling than the glory of the female body, and so it's become a commodity, monetized for selfish gain. It's become exploited for selfish pleasure. And so our society doesn't know what to do with the female body except to exploit it, but then religions don't know what to do with the female body either. It's treated as enemy number one to religious piety. And I'm not just talking about the more extreme forms of Islam that cover the female body. I'm talking about Christian purity culture. Here's where evangelicals have failed to rightly steward the glory of the female body. If you've been around conservative Christianity for any amount of time, the chances are you know the line of reasoning of the purity culture. Men are different, i.e. helplessly horny who can't control themselves in the presence of a female body. So, Christian women, in order to not cause your brothers to stumble, you should cover yourself. 
You should watch your conduct. You should do everything you can do to not tempt your brothers. Do you see? The problem is not my disordered sexuality. The problem is your body. Even when men assault the female body, your body still gets blamed. You know, what does she expect dressing like that? Or she was being flirtatious and asking for it, so on and so forth. And so in this way, the religious response to the glory of the female body is to shame the body and suppress its glory. This is what I mean when I say after the fall, sinners don't know what to do with the female body. Its glory is now caught between the brazen lewdness of secular society that prostitutes femininity and the bland uniform of religious culture that suppresses femininity. But if you could recapture the proper glory of your body as God created it, then you can discover what to do with it. And the way female glory is recaptured is to recognize that it wasn't designed to be a glory unto itself, but a glory pointing to a greater glory. Ladies, what if you viewed your body as the art of God displaying the excellencies of the artist? Because that's what it is. That's what all of creation is on some level, but your body happens to be creation's masterpiece. Oh, that you would approach what you see in the mirror as a divine, priceless masterpiece. What do you do with a da Vinci painting or a Michelangelo sculpture? You must treat them as priceless, and this demands two things. First, they must be protected. You would never place a da Vinci painting on um, a sidewalk to be mistreated, damaged, or vandalized by the public. That's a da Vinci. You don't do that with the da Vinci. It must be in a museum where you must go through security to get in, where there are railings keeping the public back from touching it. You can't treat a da Vinci painting like it's cheap art because it's not. But there's something else you must do with the da Vinci. You must not hide it. What a tragedy it would be if the Mona Lisa was hidden in a vault collecting dust. It's too beautiful. It must be on display that the world might admire its beauty. After all, da Vinci would want his masterpiece admired. Ladies, what if you approached your glory like that? What if you viewed your glory as showcasing the glory of God? From that perspective, you can't treat it as a cheap commodity for consumption as the world asks you to do. Nor can you hide and suppress it as religion asks you to do. Instead, you do with it as your creator would have you to do. Steward your glory for his glory. When it comes to questions of modesty, conduct, boundaries in dating, body image, and all these questions that women tend to wrestle with, if you ask my opinion, and I'm a dude, so maybe you're not asking my opinion, but I think if you ask the scripture's opinion, all those questions are answered less with rules and more with one governing principle. You are creation's masterpiece, displaying the beauty of the divine artist. Approach your body as such. Steward your innate glory for God's glory. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, would you be willing to let us know with a five-star rating? Uh, maybe write us a review, share it with others you think 
it might bless, and we will be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch. Thank you.